this week on the Back Table Podcast. And then I think the other thing that I think about a lot and I try to instill in other people that there are going to be challenges, just like we're going to make mistakes. But but when you face those challenges, try to see them more as opportunities to think differently about the situation and identify a way to work around that problem or work through that problem. And I think a lot of times when we're faced with some sort of challenge, if it would have just been easy, we probably wouldn't have come out with such a good product on the other side if we wouldn't have kind of really had to work for it. Welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast. Uh, we are so happy that you are joining us today. I am your host, Ashley Agan, and joined always by my lovely co-host, Gopi Shaw. Hello, Gopi. everybody. How are you today? I'm so excited. It's a good day. It's a good day for a podcast. It's a good day for a podcast. So today we have Dr. Dana Crosby, and I am going to introduce her and tell tell you all a little bit about her. She is a very impressive leader in our field. She is Associate Professor in the Department of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery at Southern Illinois University School of Medicine in Springfield. She is a rhinologist and endoscopic skull base surgeon and serves as residency program director, director of otolaryngic allergy, and the director of comprehensive otolaryngology. She went to Allegheny College in Pennsylvania for her undergraduate degree and received her medical degree at Drexel University College of Medicine. She completed her residency in otolaryngology head and neck surgery at SIU and went on to complete a fellowship in rhinology and endoscopic skull-based surgery at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. She also completed a master's in public health at Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, she's a member of the American Rhinologic Society, the American Academy of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery, the American Academy of Otolaryngic Allergy, and the Society of University otolaryngologists, as well as the American Medical Women's Association. So quite quite a list of, of um, compliments. D Dana is here today. She's going to talk to us about leadership. Welcome to the show, Dana. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Dana, for those of us who may not know you as well, give us a little bit about your background. Tell us what kind of practice you have. Yeah, absolutely. So as you heard, I did my residency here at Southern Illinois University, went away to the University of Pennsylvania for my fellowship, and then returned here in 2014. So since that time, you know, I've basically been focusing on developing a rhinologic and endoscopic skull base practice. Prior to that time, there hadn't been anybody here focusing solely on that. So it was really exciting for me to be able to come back and start to develop that. And, you know, one of the main reasons I wanted to come back here is because I felt, you know, it was something that was really missing for the patient population here. We do have quite an underserved community with a significant amount of very rural population with fairly poor access to care. So I thought that it was exciting to be able to bring a skill set back to that group of patients. So at this point, you know, basically 100% of my practice is rhinology and endoscopic skull-based surgery and all components that go along with that. And then, as you heard, I also run our otolaryngic allergy program. That's really amazing. So just for a little background, I got to meet you first at, I'd heard you speak at multiple meetings and on different panels. And then it was our time in Argentina. We got to go to a meeting and sit together and talk on a, you know, a panel with on pediatric skull base. And I was just sitting here with you and Giviana and just be like, how am I on the same panel with these brilliant women? 
And I knew you were super bright and an emerging leader in our field at that time. But when we were talking and we were talking about our practices at that point, I think you, you were about one to two years maybe out of your fellowship and you were a chairwoman. Tell us a little bit about sort of how, how you got into that. You just started to practice. You just went back to build a skull-based practice and here you are a chair of a, a department. What happened? Yeah, absolutely. So it was actually about four years into practice, so a little bit later. Um, yeah, so basically what happened was one of the main reasons I actually came back to Southern Illinois University was because of the leadership that was in place. Um, Dr. Carol Bauer had just taken over the position of chair and she reached out to me and asked if I would be willing to come back when in reality, the the, the department, which was then a division, was in a little bit of trouble. And, you know, the second she called me, I knew that I had no hesitation. I was absolutely coming back because, you know, I, I think a couple of things, and this is one of my major lessons in leadership, I think, you know, I knew with her in that position, we had a really outstanding chance to turn the program around and really develop it into something that had the values that we wanted in a residency program and in patient care. But the other thing I thought about was, you know what, if in a year from now we fail and this division folds, there's nobody I would rather fail with than her. And so, you know, that was why it made it such an easy decision for me to come back here. But then, much to my dismay, I suppose, about four years into my practice, she decided to retire, which, I mean, she is living her best life and sculpting and painting and doing all sorts of fantastic things. But, you know, I was kind of devastated because she is just one of my heroes. But at that moment, you know, we were kind of left in a position where we were not going to have a chair and we didn't have any prospects on the horizon. So I actually, along with one of my partners, was asked to be co-chair. So wow. we ultimately were uh, co-chair for a little over a year. And it was at a really interesting time because it was just as we were trying to make that step to go from division to department. What is that transition like? Yeah. Is your decision of general surgery, I assume? Absolutely. I get yeah. the sense that you guys are probably pretty small, right? How many? We were. How big were you? Yeah. So when I came back, we had three faculty in the call pool. So my uh, first year of practice was a week of call every three weeks. Oh, wow. Um, right out of rhinology fellowship, I was doing head and neck cancer surgery. And I was doing facial trauma. I was kind of doing the whole spectrum with the goal of the lady between. Yes. Yes, exactly. With the goal in mind that, you know, in the next year, we could hopefully recruit some amazing subspecialty trained faculty to fill those voids. So, yeah, we we went from just, you know, three kind of full time faculty and one clinical faculty member at that time to now eight clinical faculty. And that transition, you know, we brought in about five subspecialty trained faculty that next year. So and again, I attribute that to the leadership of, of my chair who was in that position at that time. Wow. So well, how did you go become from being a division to a department? What it, are there certain what kind of steps you take? What's the yeah. politics like? What, what does that mean? Like, how do you do it? It's challenging across the board. It was kind of a crash course to, in um, figuring out what it takes to do that. So, you know, it was something that I had been heard discussed around our offices since when I was a resident. You know, this was something we always had as a goal, but we just never really could position ourselves um, to make that move. So finally, we were able to kind of sort and disentangle all of our books, our finances, all of those things from the rest of the division, and then made a huge push to really show 
that we were profitable and we could stand on our own. And then it was just a series of trying to identify throughout our institution and then at the state level as well, since we're a state institution, how you kind of navigate that process. And there were about five or six steps just within the institution and about three or four more steps after that at the state level to get approval. And it was one of those things that we were super passionate about. You know, it's a challenge. You know, there are certainly benefits to being a department of a division. You can share resources and those kinds of things. But while there wasn't much of a conflict of interest for myself as a rhinologist, some of my other partners, in particular facial plastics and microvascular, had a lot of conflict of interest that was a big challenge at the time. So this was one of those things that I really saw as I really don't want to fail because I really, my partners really need this to have successful careers. And, and I wanted to keep them here because I think they're fantastic. And so we just needed to do everything we could. And, you know, it was ultimately the political circumstances were, were challenging, but ultimately I think we got people on, on board and showed that we really, we could do this. And, and I think that, you know, the, the outcome has just been fantastic. You know, I think we have a lot more freedom and kind of control of, over our own destiny at this point. When the suggestion for you to be co-chair, when that like came up, were you surprised or were you like, you know, yeah, affecting it or were you, <laughs> did you raise your hand and say, yeah, I could probably give this a shot or, <laughs> you know, it was kind of shock, terror, excitement <laughs> all at the same time, <laughs> a lot of emotions all at once. Um, you know, it was kind of funny because I actually was on vacation somewhere. I don't remember where at this point, but my husband and I just the night before had been kind of talking about, well, I finally finished my public health degree. And I said, no, now I'm going to have some free time. <laughs> and my husband quite wisely said, oh, please, you're just going to find something else to fill your time with. I know better. Yeah. And I was like, no, no, what else could there be? Literally the next day I get a phone call, you know, asking if I would be willing to do this. And I must have just had a look of horror, like I had just seen a ghost because I hung up the phone and you know, my husband's like, what's happening? <laughs> so, you know, it's one of those things though. It's, I was definitely scared, but it was an opportunity that to learn and develop a whole skill set that I never thought I would ever have at this point in my career. So I just couldn't pass it up. Yeah. It sounds like there was no hesitation. It sounds like you knew the answer was yes. And yeah. It's going to be hard, but yeah, this, I'm going to do this. The answer was yes, and I'll figure out how tomorrow. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You just, yeah, you, you figure it out. You make it work. <laughs> so you said you developed a skill set. What kinds of challenges did you face and what, what are the skills or tools that you feel like you've gained from that experience? Yeah, well, I would say one of my biggest challenges and hurdles to overcome was just imposter syndrome. You know, I, yeah. I was just, I felt, you know, at this point in my career, who am I? How can, you know, how can I? even begin to think that I can do this job. And so usually, you know, when I come up against something like that, I, I try to find ways to overcome that. And so for me, that was to identify mentors that both inside and outside of my institution who I thought had developed excellence in, in leadership and try to pick their brain and learn from any mistakes that they would tell me about and any wins that they would tell me about and just took a lot of notes. And then I decided that I should probably start developing my now small library of, of leadership books. And I spent a lot of time just trying to read, so read research and, and different books on leadership to understand what had been shown to, to make a good leader. Uh, 
evidence-based. <laughs> I love data. <laughs> and try to try to incorporate those and try to identify and, and build those those skills and ideals in myself. Are there any particular books that you would recommend for our yeah. listeners looking to up their leadership skills? Yeah, there are many. I think my favorite is is Good to Great by Jim Collins. And you know, a lot of the the leadership books that are out there are in the business world, not surprising. So that's kind of where I went. And that similarly is, is a book, a business book. And it looks at what made different businesses excel significantly above the mean of other businesses, even when it was thought that those businesses were not likely to, to succeed and really focused on the leadership style that led those businesses to kind of float to the top. So that was, that's one of my favorites. What is your leadership style, Dana? Like, yeah, do you feel like, it, you know, and that, that might change, I, I don't know, or maybe, absolutely. but like, what, what do you, how do you do it? Yeah. So I think my leadership style definitely changes. I think my, my baseline leadership style is kind of diplomacy. You know, I, when I can, when we have time to do so, I like to allow everybody to have a little bit of input and, and a say in any decision that I might be required to make. But that being said, you know, certainly there are times where that is not the best leadership style and you need to make quick decisions and you need to make decisions that, that you feel are going to be to the benefit of at least the majority. And so that's something that I've had to work on is kind of developing that, that side of leadership. It, it's easy for me to, to listen. I'm an introvert. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so for me, it's, you know, I, I, I can listen and I can take things in, but for me to kind of take a stand and take charge, that's a little bit more challenging. So that's the side I've had to work on. Do you, do you feel like your co-chair had a complimentary leadership style? Yeah, she's much more of an extrovert than I am. So, you know, I think she is somebody who is really good at going out and talking to people and, you know, just that really bubbly personality that kind of draws people in. Whereas I, as I said, I, I kind of sit back and I, I listen and I kind of take things in. So we kind of had both sides of that. And I think, you know, we were able to learn from each other through that process as well. Yeah. Yeah. We're like the perfect team. Ba backing up to you, when you talked about your mentors, how do you go about, you know, creating those relationships with mentors? You just send out an email, you know, call them up. Do you try to use connections that you already know? To be like, you know, hey, so-and-so introduce me to, you know, that person because I think that they could teach me something. Yeah. You know, so I think a little bit all of the above. So some relationships I think are just organic and you develop those relationships just through relationships that you've already established. And so I think those relationships I definitely tapped early. And then as as time went on, I I when I was looking for different ideas or thoughts, I just kind of tried to reflect on who in the institution have I admired or who outside of the institution have I admired. And honestly, I would just email and, and just see if they would be willing to help. And luckily, because they are amazing leaders, nobody turned me down. Everybody was willing to help and chat and share information and share stories, you know. And so I think, I think just like I always kind of say, you have to kind of have a broad mentorship portfolio. You know, it, I don't think anybody should just have one mentor because they're so many different things in your life that you can have mentors for. For me, it was just kind of trying to glean little bits of information from a variety of different people. So I wanted to ask you, I wanted to go back as well. You'd mentioned values and a residency, and it made me think of like value-based leadership. Can you go into that a little bit or tell us what kind of values you find to be important in 
you talked about being a good listener and di- diplomacy, but. Yeah. So I think values, you know, for leadership, certainly I would say probably the biggest one that, that I've learned is humility. You know, I think we all make mistakes and that definitely does not mean that just because somebody might be a good leader, they're still going to make mistakes and somebody might have a better idea than you. And so I think just being able to keep that perspective and recognize that that you will make mistakes. And when you do make mistakes, I think that the best path forward is to admit them, learn from them and see what you can do differently and try not to repeat them in the future. And ultimately, you know, I think that that often kind of brings about more, allows a leader to develop credibility, I suppose, because I think if you don't have credibility as a leader, you're in trouble. You know, if, if, people, if people don't support you, you're going to have a really hard time leading them because they're not going to follow you because they don't buy into what you're doing. They don't buy into your goals. So, you know, I think credibility is, is another one. You know, you, I think you really just have to kind of do what you say you're going to do. And if you make a promise, hold to it. And if there's no, if for some reason you really can't have a really good explanation and be open about that. You know, I think those are two of the biggest lessons that, that I've learned. Yeah. Yeah. Your, your word is really all you have sometimes at the end of the day, you know, like it's, it, once you lose that, once that's out the window, it's, it's really hard to, to go back from that. Talk to us about um, the, the difficult situations where you are having trouble finding common ground with somebody or, you know, how every now and then you're working with somebody and you're like, I don't think they like me or <laughs> I just don't think that we are going to be able to do this together. Like, do you have any pearls for how to overcome those hurdles? Is that all in my head? <laughs> <laughs> just the narrative. <laughs> Where's it coming from? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. And those relationships, as we are all aware, do happen. Um, And I do think it's important, especially in a position of leadership, to figure out how to navigate that. that. And I think that it's, it's challenging. You know, sometimes maybe it is in your head, but usually there is something. And I think just being willing to be open and listen and, and talk and kind of talk through things and, and identify what your differences are. And sometimes I think through trying to identify what your differences are, you actually find some things that you have in common and then you can use those those that common ground to kind of progress and start to build a relationship but i think the worst thing you can do is ignore it or try to hide from it that's the easy thing to do it's it's easy to avoid somebody who doesn't like you or you perceive doesn't like you but but i think the more you kind of face that head on again it's it's going to gain you credibility even with somebody who who may not be your biggest fan at least they know that you're willing to work with them and that you're willing to support them regardless of your differences. Yeah, I think that's great advice. In terms of like medical education residents, do you intentionally have things or talks? How do you teach leadership or how do you help our, your trainees, your fellows, your residents really, you know, develop those skills? I mean, you have to be able to be a leader in the OR. You have to be able to be a leader in your clinic. How do we help that make that more of a part of our education, if you will. Yeah. So this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately uh, because I do think it's really, really critical. I I kind of feel like we, we don't have a choice whether or not we're in charge of people. And like you said, that's in the OR, that's in clinic, that's with our patients. And, you know, there may be other positions of, you know, leadership positions that, that, that we hold, but 
as physicians, I don't think we really have a choice if we're going to be in charge of people, but I think we do have a choice if we're going to be a leader, because I think that's very different. And, you know, you could probably go through your day and, and just be in charge of people and get things done and that's okay. But I think it's more fulfilling for you, your patients, those that you're educating, those that you're working next to, if you can, you know, develop those leadership skills and intentionally focus on being a leader. So, you know, I think that it is something that is massively lacking in our residency education. And, you know, when I was kind of thrown into these positions, I, one of the reasons that I kind of thought to myself, well, maybe this isn't imposter syndrome. Maybe I really am totally underprepared because, <laughs> because I've never been trained. I've never been told like, this is how you're supposed to be a good leader. And I think that there probably should be curriculums implemented at every step along the way, you know, medical school, residency, and at the faculty level as well. You know, I think our roles change and, and progress. And so I really think that there should be ways to formally talk about that. The challenge, I think, when it comes to educating residents is that their time is so limited and we already are really busy in the OR and clinic. We have journal club, we have M&M, we have QIPS conferences, we have didactics and skills labs. And so where do you fit that in without taking away from something else? And that's kind of the challenge I've actually been trying to work on to, to identify ways to try to implement a formal curriculum. And, you know, I think something as simple as, as a book club or just a place where you can sit down over dinner and drinks, whatever you want, and just kind of openly discuss some of the challenges that, that come with developing leadership skills and, and some of the techniques to, to develop those skills. So, you know, that's something that, that I've been thinking about is implementing a book club. And then, you know, I think getting people engaged in courses when you can, but again, that's just, it's challenging at the resident level. Their time is precious. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's, there's so much to learn in five years and it goes by so fast. You know, we are teaching the residents a lot, even when we're not saying anything. I mean, they're watching, you know, how we treat people in the OR, how we talk to, you know, consultants, how, you know, they're, they're learning from us when we're not even like formally giving them a lecture. And, and so I, that's even, you know, gives, it puts even more of the responsibility on us to really kind of walk the walk the walk that that we talk about am i saying that right what no walk the talk (laughs) for sure they're they're looking at us right and there's a lot of communication is that unspoken communication of you know just how we carry ourselves every day yeah i think that's so true yeah do you do anything different with your uh, women residents or medical students is that leadership different at all do you think do you think it you know, male, female, how does it all play a role? And do you think about that differently? I feel like I do. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Personally, I feel like I think about it differently with my female residents just because it is different. But I don't know if I have any sort of special, you know, ways to do it right, if you will. But it's just, it's something that I don't want to miss, but it's so important. Yeah. So I think for me, I, I definitely do approach that differently. And only because I think there has been, Obviously, we all are aware that there's been such a lack of of role models and and female leaders in our field and in medicine and so many other fields. So I think that it's really important to kind of model that that you can be a leader and you can 
you know, really grow in this field and and stand out. And I think one of the things that that I think about a lot and I try to really impress on on my female residents or f- other females that I mentor is that, you know, for a long time, I think that women were told that in order to be a leader, you need to act like a man. Yeah. And whatever that means, because I know a lot of men who act a lot of different ways right? <laughs> in leadership. But, but you know, I think that for so long, it was kind of like, well, if you're going to be a leader, you need to be, you need to be gruff and you need to be tough and you need to not, not get, you know, pushed around. And sure, I don't think anybody should be pushed around. But, you know, I think that unfortunately, that advice probably isn't the best advice because I think then you come across as a bit disingenuous because you're trying to be something that you're not. And so what I tell my female residents is identify what your best skills are and just be the best version of what you are. And don't try to change who you are. If you're quiet, if you're extroverted, you know, whatever the case may be, just work on identifying those skills and being true to yourself. And again, I think that speaks to credibility. If you try to pretend you're something you're not, people aren't going to buy in. That's such good advice. And I I love great life advice. True. I mean, we all, I mean, it's, it's so obvious when you meet people who are just genuine and you just, it's so, there's just something about them and you're like, wow, like they're really, you know, living their best life and they're being true to themselves and they're doing what they love. And it's just, it's contagious almost. So I think that's great advice because I mean, we, Gopi and I both work with medical students and residents a lot and find that there is a big responsibility about how we are advising them and the things that we're telling them when we're preparing them for interviews or different, you know, big steps in their life. And, and I lose sleep about, you know, did I say, did I give the wrong advice? But I, that's so simple. I love that. Just, just be true to yourself. But I also like focus on your strengths. I find, I felt like in residency, the whole, I got to work on this. I got to work on this. I got to do this better. You know, I got to, and yet, if you can find what they're good at or what even for apply it to yourself, what you, you know, what you're good at or what I'm good at, whatever, and move that ball forward, everything around you seems to to grow and progress. So I, I like that focus on your strengths. Yeah, for sure. We tell them to, you know, that networking is important. And and as we were talking earlier, you know, you have been successful at, you know, building a good portfolio of mentors and having those connections. And these days, you know, with COVID and the inability to grab coffee or to go into meetings and sit next to people, have you developed any, you know, tricks to still have a, like a meaningful connection and network with people in the same way now that we are all on Zoom? Yeah, it's it's a challenge, certainly. And I'm looking forward to to it being over. But <laughs> but <laughs> but, you know, I think that you still can have meaningful relationships, even if it is via Zoom. You know, I think that it might take a little bit more to kind of break through and kind of get people to be a little bit more genuine and, and kind of relaxed. And you miss some of those nonverbal cues that that we typically have when we're having in-person relationships. But, you know, with medical students coming through, applying to otolaryngology this year and and those kinds of things, I feel like. Although it might have taken a little bit more effort and a little bit more time, you know, I think we've developed really strong, real relationships, to, despite the fact they feel very virtual at times. And I, and so I think, you know, you still can do it and just being aware that it might take a little bit more effort. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. There are a little bit, everything I feel like what you do now is so intentional and selective because you have to be because of exposures and you can't just do this and do that and go. So every interaction, every choice that you make is a lot more 
intentional and probably more real, like you said. Yeah, it re- reminds me of, so one of the things I think, the reason why I, I talk so much about kind of being true to yourself is I think of a story that when I was applying to residency, one of my male faculty, who was really quite young. So I, you know, sometimes I can kind of like look past somebody who's super old, who might have these uh, prejudicial, you know, these biases, but this very young male faculty called me into his office and told me that nobody would take me seriously unless I dyed my hair back to its natural color, which this is my natural color. I've never dyed my hair. (laughs) I'm blonde for those of you who can't see me. And that I should wear glasses instead of contacts. I don't have contacts. I was like, I have 20-20 vision. Um, I'll take it as long as I can get it. And that I should really kind of dress down and not wear makeup. And so Mm. when he told me this, this was just as I was about to go into interviews, you know, and I kind of left and I was just like, kind of beside myself. Yeah, I was just, what is going on? I couldn't believe that somebody, you know, would have said this to me. That, you know, that I wouldn't be taken seriously. And so I just decided to just double down. And I was like, I'm going to get the most feminine suit. I'm going to wear probably more makeup than I would have worn. And, right. and I said, you know what, if, if people don't take me seriously because of how I look or because I'm not wearing glasses, you know, so be it. I don't want to work with that person. Right. I, and yeah. so that's, you know, that's really, I think, when I first really thought, man, you know, we just need to be who we are. And if people don't like it, that's on them. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure he maybe felt like he was helping you, like he was giving yeah. you like some, you know, the inside, you know, insider information on how to. Yeah, absolutely. I think that he really thought that I should thank him for that advice, you know. <laughs> All right. I gotta, yeah. My head is just tough. shaking. No, constantly. I won't. OK, yeah, but my head control back. Sorry. For, for those of you who can't see us, my head's just been shaking right and less. No. That's so bad. We, we've, we, we recently talked to our residents about, you know, gender discrimination and microaggressions and things like that. But I mean, that one's just kind of, that one's not micro. That one's pretty, <laughs> pretty in your face. <laughs> and your re- response and reaction is wonderful. And that's probably what has given you that strength to continue to be a leader and do what you believe in despite whatever challenge, you know, to have your purpose and do it your way. I think that's wonderful. And, you know, even at the, when you're a medical student, like I, it's important for us to tell them, you know, they, as much as you're trying to look good and match, you have a choice too. And the biggest choice that they have is be yourself, you know, be true to your word, you know, work hard, be who you are. Because you're right. At the end of the day, you want the values of the program to match with what your internal values are. And that way every, you know, the program grows, you grow and, you know, you're happy and um, productive. So. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's right on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, any other pearls, Dana, any other, you know, for, you know, people that are first five years out of the career, people that, you know, are just starting people that are at the end, what, what do you, what other than just, you know, anything else? That you're not so, you know, I think this is fairly common career advice, but I've I've found it to be really accurate. You know, I think in the beginning of your career, especially, say yes to opportunities. If you say yes to opportunities, you don't know what other opportunity might follow that. 
And I think that that is one of the reasons that that I've had some of the opportunities that I have have had, because, you know, if I hadn't have done something else before, then that subsequent opportunity wouldn't have come. And then I think the other thing that I think about a lot and I try to instill in other people that there are going to be challenges just like we're going to make mistakes. But but when you face those challenges, try to see them more as opportunities to think differently about the situation and identify a way to work around that problem or work through that problem. And I think a lot of times when we're faced with some sort of challenge, if it would have just been easy, we probably wouldn't have come out with such a good product on the other side if we wouldn't have kind of really had to work for it. So, you know, I think those are a couple of things that, that I think about a lot. You know, as for people who are later in their career, I, I don't know that I have the best advice because I haven't been there. But I think all of these things, you know, probably I'm told when you're later in your career, you maybe don't say yes as much and you're a little bit more selective. But what I've been told from some of the people that are my mentors is that when you are in that position where you're finding yourself getting to the point where you can be more selective of the opportunities that you take rather than just saying no, try to identify somebody else who you can pass that opportunity on to. So maybe you could say, I can't do this, but I have this, this amazing person, junior faculty or a resident or somebody else who I think would be outstanding for this. Yeah, that's great. Especially as women bring it, bring each other up. It's great. Absolutely. Do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dana, if anybody, or do you have, is there a uh, social media, if people want to find you or learn more about you? Yeah. So, you know, that's one of the things I'm probably not very good at. I, I am not very good at social media and I'll, almost probably every other month, I think to myself that I really need to get better at that. And I should have Instagram. And <laughs> I don't have any of it either. <laughs> I don't, either. but you are, anybody honestly is more than welcome to reach out to me via email. Um, and my email address is dcrosby53 at siumed.edu. And I, love hearing from people and medical students, residents, and other faculty. I love just getting to, to know people and learn from other people. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I feel inspired. I've learned a ton and I just want to do me. I just want to be myself now. I can't wait. That's it. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been really fun. And it's, it's great to talk with you when it seems like we haven't been able to talk as much as we otherwise would have. <laughs> Well, that's a good place to put a pin in it, I suppose. For our listeners, if you want to find us on uh, social media, we are at uh, Twitter and Instagram. Our handles are at underscore backtable ENT. We'll see you next time. It's a wrap. Bye. <laughs>